Conversation with David Ackett. Joining me today is Malcolm Lawrence. Malcolm, introduce yourself and what you're here for today. Well, it's basically to speak about all the things that I remember during my life, basically, which will include living in Penzance and also on the Isles of Scilly. Okay, so have you always lived in Penzance? Not really. Well, yeah, yes, I have. But let me get this one right. I lived in Penzance until I was eight years old. I then moved to the Isles of Scilly to live with an aunt and an uncle. The uncle was the brother of my mother. When we lived in, in Parkworth Avenue, all the children for miles around used to come to the Princess Mayor Recreation Ground and they had marvellous swings and roundabouts, they had an American there and all sorts of things like that but one day um, I walked too close to the swings and I got kicked in the head or just above the eye with a boy with opnail boots and was taken to the hospital to dress, I've still got the scar today of course, mother thought that I'd had an accident. In Trenere, was being built, and the road was being uh, laid just at that point, quite adjacent to the swings, but it wasn't. So. And what is your um, memories of moving to Town to live? Um, we moved to Weirytown. Um, I don't really know the reason why, but it could have been because it got us closer to the sea, because where we were there in Marytown, you could walk across the road in your swimming trunks, and then you actually went swimming straight away. But, uh, I mean, it's a, a proper little community down there. I mean, there's people still in contact with one another now after all these years. But the one group that I remember specifically were the Belgian fishermen and their families who were evacuated from the continent, you know, where the Germans moved in and one thing and another. But they had the good expertise because of being fishermen to uh, look for mines and they would drag a, a rope, I presume, or steel hawser between two vessels and that would bring the mines, cut the wires on the wires and lift to the surface. So you was pretty close to the sea then? Yes, I've always been very close to the sea, until I got married. So, um, what was the boys um, forming up into a gang and go-karts? Well, it, we, we used to, we were the Worrytown gang, you know, all the boys of Worrytown. And there was a Newling gang as well. And one day we got the go-karts out and we came down over the hill. I'm trying to think what the whole hill was coiled. 
uh, old Rigan Hill, and we were in the go-kart, probably too many that should have been there, and we come here and down over, and we came around the corner, and there was a rope totally held by the Newling gang and swept us all off the go-kart. But that was the sort of thing that we do. And it wasn't done maliciously. It was all in play, if you understand what I mean. It's, it's not... It's a different attitude they've got today now. It's a totally different attitude compared to when I was growing up. So the attitude back then, I suppose, was, would you say, more strict or more Well, relaxed? no, I mean, we, we, we were strict in the respect that we respected our elders, if you understand what I mean. You know, we'd no more think about doing anything uh, people like mine, at that time, I was only about, what, say about eight or ten. Well, it wouldn't be as old as then. It was about seven or eight anyway, so... But I was being led astray by the older boys. And easily influence is one of the things that being part of a gang was part of, wasn't it? That's right, yes, yes. And if you fail to, I assume, if you fail to do what they told you, you wasn't part of again. Well, it wasn't exactly that. It's just that um, we just followed them with what they were doing, you know, because it was the accepted thing, you know. But down at Wherrytown as well, there was a, what they classed as a boating pool, and we used to play in that, and scores of times I've fallen in and dragged myself out but I mean it's no longer used as a boating pool it's just a, a feature uh, yeah there's it's wasn't even used as it what it was for little children to play it's no longer used for that sort of thing now it's just there as a feature in the gardens now so what is your early recollections of actual school as such um well, we went to school over Talcorn School, which is on the end of the New Road, the closest end to Penzance of Newlyn. And uh, quite a good time we had there. You know, I, had, I can remember when the King and Queen came down. Or oh, this, this would be back in 1942, when they brought the two princesses down with them. Now, this would have been the first time that the Princess Elizabeth, as she was then, was the first time she visited Cornwall, and Penzance in particular, and this was before even her coronation, so obviously she was going to become the future queen. But I can remember we had a half-term from school, and I came down, and we were on the road leading between Penzance and, and Newlyn, and somebody lifted me up, I think, and they put me on a window ledge because I can remember being up high, looking down into the car as they went by, and I could see the two little girls sitting in the back, and it wasn't until afterwards that I realised that they were Princess Margaret and Princess Elizabeth. Uh, and, she, you know, Queen Elizabeth, as she is now, has come down to Penzance ever since, really, hasn't she? She's well, a... yes, yes, yes. I mean, what her, what her mother and father did was to bring them down, actually, to see the fishing fleet, you know, to see Newland. 
So, I mean, it could have been they were opening something. I just don't know. I was too young to realise that sort of thing, you know. So, um, did you often go outside Penzance for any trips when you went to school, do you remember? Um, we used to go to... Well, I, one thing I can remember particularly was a Sunday school trip, trip that we went to Carver's Bay on the train. And you had your tea treat bun. I can vividly remember that, but I can't remember anybody around me. All I was interested in was my tea treat bun and being able to go swimming. I remember when I went on Sunday school in Norfolk, they took me to um, St. Alice Paul's Minister Beach and... I've always remembered the tea treat buns back then were always big, but nowadays they just seem smaller in size. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So would you agree they've gone smaller in size? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what appalls me now is that some of the bakers don't even make tea treat buns now. And when you go in and ask for a tea treat bun, they don't even know what you're talking about. You often said you liked your swimming and walking along across the road to get to swim. Yeah. Was that because there was because I assume there wasn't much traffic then as it is nowadays? Uh, the, the Western National buses were down the end, the new inside of Wherrytown, and all the buses were there. But you didn't have the volume of buses now. You had the first ones going in about out in about seven o'clock, and then they just came out in drips and drabs like that, because there were other uh, bus stations around. Well, there was a bus station at St Ives, a bus station at Houston. There was another one at Redruth, so it wasn't all where in Wherrytown, but I mean they were all those that started early from Penzance were based at uh, Western National Garage in that, uh, we called it the Reagan, the Reagan River. I mean, in those days, and I mean, I go up to 1952, pre-1952, the buses and the trains were worked in unison. If the bus was a bit late, the train would wait for them, and vice versa. If the train was a bit late, the bus was wait before they pulled off. Mind, it might have had something to do with, in those days, the Western National Bus Company had drivers who actually re drove the buses, so there's a good liaison between the buses and the trains. Um, as you grew older, you said you were travelling to facilities. That was why I specifically remember the King and Queen and the Princesses coming down in 1942 because I moved out to the Silis in November 1942 and I've got vivid recollections of that sort of thing. But it was a completely different environment over there. Um, obviously... Only about eight. It took me a bit of while to get sort of settled in with things and go to school there. But eventually, um, I wouldn't say accepted. I, you know, it, it was a done thing. All the children were part of all the family, you know, all the friends and everything. You were friend, and you all the senior people, you called uncle and auntie, even though you weren't your uncle and auntie. 
So it basically felt like one big happy family. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, we moved, well, I moved over to what was in the 1914-18 war. There was a battalion based on the garrison where I went to live. And it was all this sort of the the dungeons were there with the billets for the soldiers and all this sort of thing. But in the meantime, they'd moved to Star Castle Hotel. But it left like a, a ground-level bungalow. The actual roof was level with the ground. And obviously the war was on then, but the bombers used to come in and use the two hills of Samson as a sighting to come in over the islands but unfortunately our bungalow was on the same line of fire as they were and they would come in firing their machine guns as we went in and if I was on that flat roof I had to run like the clappers to go down into this basement and after this sort of thing happened my aunt used to make it I can't remember whether it was tea or coffee but a drop of spirits was put in for all of us to sort of steady our our nerves as it were what was it like to live on the Oslo City? Oh, lovely. lovely. We were, you know, we were one big happy family. Everybody knew everybody else, you know. Uh, progressively, as I sort of settled in, um, I then obviously started going to Sunday school and church. And then they wanted somebody to pump the organ. And I presume I volunteered or was commandeered to, to, to pump the organ. I had some interesting experiences with that. One of our school teachers, none of us children liked it because she was very free with her hand and gave us a clip round the ear when things weren't going right. But she was one of these who liked to promote herself when anybody important came over to the islands and she would insist on playing the organ you know, and the, the organist was pushed to one side. But she was a buster when she played by using all the stops, which meant that there was more air being used. Well, I controlled the air that went into the organ by a lead weight, and there was a line that you keep it, and you would keep it below that line to make sure there was air in the uh, organ. But... We called her Lizzie Rogers, Lizzie. When Lizzie was playing, I would get that lead weight just below the level of that line. And when all the stops were pulled out, the organ would go... Of course, I was was tickled pink with that. You did that on purpose, Malcolm. You did that. I'm sorry, miss. It was when you pulled all the stops out, I couldn't keep up with the organ you were trying to pull out from the organ, the air you were trying to pull out of the organ. But all the children were delighted when I did this to her. <laughs> it wasn't done maliciously. It was sort of, uh, I'm in control there. You know, I, I control what you... <laughs> so you would call yourself a joker as you was growing up then? A comedian that liked to... Well, always up to mischief, I suppose. Well, <laughs> all us children were, you know. Yeah. yeah. So how much was you paid to pump the organ? Oh, that. I had uh, a shilling for services and half a crown for weddings. So, uh, I mean, that was you know, quite good. You know, we probably... 
But then, having said that, you know, in those days, children were expected to do something for their pocket money. I know I used to take cans of paraffin at the people who lived around, because in those days, a lot of people used paraffin um, stoves and things like that and I was paid sixpence a can to go down to the quay and pick up these cans of um, paraffin I used to put a, a yoke thing on my shoulders and tie the rope to that and then the handle so I took the weight on my shoulders but I could take five maximum cans in that wheelbarrow, so that was half a crown a week I could earn from that, and I thought I was you know, in, in, in easy street with that. I mean, to be paid six months for a can. I mean, I mean, obviously the people were quite pleased that I did it for them, but I mean, it saved them sort of, they, they would have had, it was only about, well, say, quarter and a half a mile to go for this, but um, it meant that they didn't have the drudgery of doing that, you know. Mm. I know what you mean. You did their work, basically, instead yes, of them yeah, doing and got paid for it, uh, and that gave me mine. I didn't use to spend it unnecessarily. I used to put into national savings stamps. You know, so that was, to me, I'd... I, when I was putting money into the national savings, it was money that I'd earned, and it wasn't given to me just as pocket money, if you understand what I mean, you know. You've kept your money just to say this is what I've that's earned. Right, that's over. right, I mean, I used to keep take, keep out, say, um, a penny for, penny or tums for pictures or something like that, you know, but uh, that was all other than that. It just used to go in for uh, savings. Mm. So... Um, you, I assume the war was still on when you went over to the city. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, over there we had a squadron of hurricanes based mm. on the aerodrome, and we had Sunderlands that were floating in, anchored in a pool, which is the harbour where all the boats and that were. And the hurricanes were there mainly because of these fighters coming in and flying like that. But it was quite amusing, really, because the um, pilots used to dare one another to fly between the masts of the Salonian. And one day, I, I don't know why, we were, we, I'd, we'd gone over to St. Martin's for a day or something, and I was watching the hurricane come down between the, the masts of the Salonian, and suddenly it disappeared. And when we got back to St. Mary's, um, the foremast of the Salonian was snapped right off halfway down and the hurricane apparently had hit this and just gone straight into the sea. But it seemed funny to be on St. Martin to see this. I mean, I would say the ship would have been something like about, oh, say 20 or 25 miles away, but you could see it was quite a nice clear day so you could see everything went on. And I assume this was the original Salonian, not Salonian. No, this was the original Salonian, that's right, yeah, yeah. She was a stuggy boat. I mean, I, I used to go on it quite often. And my aunt used to make me bacon sandwiches to eat over there. And I used to, because I mean, obviously, but then I was quite a good sailor, and I'd have the spew pans. 
I suppose I think that's a polite way of, of calling <laughs> it. And I'd be handing these around to everybody <clears throat> and eating my sandwich at the same time and saying, Why is everybody being sick around me? <laughs> so <laughs> Well, at that Thelonian one, um, she was there. Well, at that time, we had a small, um, there was a small ship that was employed to ease the burden on the Thelonian, and she used to carry about 25 passengers to help, you know, the burden for day trips and things like that, you know. And she was called the Lady of the Isles, I can remember that, you know. But she was a miniature version of the Saronian. So a smaller, small scale. That's right, yeah, yeah. And do you remember how much it cost back then, or was it just one of those things that got paid for you and you don't remember? I don't think about that. All I knew was my ticket was paid for. <laughs> <laughs> so you was how long was you over on the Sillies for? Well, I, I lived on the Sillies oh, until I was about 14. But... There's, there's a few stories to do with the cities. Um, the Sunderlands were there specifically to guard the entrance to the English Channel. And they had bombs, obviously, and they would dive and bomb the submarines were there to clear the submarines. But at one time, there was a Walrus amphibian that came down. Um, I think it was probably come down for a, a friendly trip, as I put it in that way. You know? And uh, there was a group on this, and they took off from the roads, which is a strip of man between St. Mary's and Tresco's, and a gust of wind caught them, and it pushed them over on their side, and it broke a float on the Boris Amphibian, and that was on the... Um, beach there for a long time waiting till they were able to acquire a float I assume uh, this was done um, unobtrusively so they wouldn't they wouldn't get into trouble because I assume this being a, a joint from what jointy from what they call these things uh, they were entertaining different ones on flying trips um, what was it about the Liberator bomber and the prospect for ring making? Oh. I was standing, I was actually coming home from school, and Starcastle Hotel is on the garrison, which is a tall point of the islands. And I saw this Liberator coming down with one of its wheels hanging down, and it circled around and circled around. And it was only a small aerodrome, but anyway, I saw it crash land in the aerodrome and then come down through, and went through the hedges of Parting Corn Farm. And of course, instead of going home, I heard off the same as all of us children to hear this, see what this liberator was all about and what was like. And Perspex was one of those things in those days. They were like a hardened plastic for the windows of the aircraft. 
and we were all clamoring to try and get pieces of perspex and the policeman was there trying to stop us and while two or three was attracting his attention on one side the others around the other side pinching the, the perspex but there were scores of perspex ring going around after that where he made all these so you still went to school open the old oh yes 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 Oh, we were actually privileged. A colleague of mine who was in school over with me, we were privileged to have our education there because we had a top-rate education, but it also taught us to be very self-confident because obviously a lot of prominent people would come over there on holidays and we just accepted them. You know, it wasn't... There was no airs and graces with them. You know, they 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 were pleased that we accepted them as themselves and not the position they held in the country. I can remember going over there a long time after I left, and I took a mini coach over for something to do with the health service. That's another story. And the lady running, or one of the ladies within the paper shop, came running out when she saw me. She obviously saw me going down to the Stonian because I had to go down to pick up this mini-coach because I was taking the chief executives of the regional health authorities who were having a conference there, and she leapt out into the road, and I had to stop the bus, and I said, look, Vera, you know, we're holding the... Don't matter about the other traffic, she said. I want to find out what you're doing. I want, you know, they're picking my brain spaces to know why I was there. But time was no object, you know, it was another day tomorrow as far as they were concerned over there. How old was you when you came back to the mainland? I was about 14. Um, but, I mean, the thought was we had cinemas there once a week and dancing once a month and when you're in your teens um, that wasn't enough life as far as you were concerned you know I, I can there's lots of things about the house of silly I can remember I mean one in particular my uncle was a keeper on the Bishop Rock Lighthouse and the craze was that we all made these wooden windmills to, to fly in the air and anyway Uncle Bert made me this magnificent um, windmill was about six or eight inches in diameter and it was the envy of all the, the children and I used to stand on the top of the hill on the level with Starcastle Hotel and he was principal keeper on the Bishop Rock and I'd hold us up so that he could see me with it. And he used to say that, you know, that he could see me when I was up there doing this. So it gave him an added interest being stuck on the uh, lighthouse like that. Did you actually go to that lighthouse then? I've been around it, but never been on that one. I have been on various lighthouses, but that one, because it was so isolated, um, the keepers had to go up over a sling, they would put their foot in a loop of a rope and pull, be pulled up by a pulley and then onto the landing stage and then the next one would put his foot in a loop and then be let down. And it was um, a month on and two months ashore. In other words, four weeks on and then eight weeks off. And that was the same ritual that went on. Would you have liked to do that as a job? 
Not particularly, no. It wasn't anything to appeal to me. I wasn't anything for that. Uh, I wasn't adventurous enough not to uh, sort of try and climb up, that sort of thing, yeah. I was all right on board a boat and things like that, but uh, that to me was um, a bit too precarious for me, timid little lad that I was. Malcolm, carrying on about the theme of the Sillies, what else do you remember about the Sillies? Oh, I can remember because the war was still on. Um, we used to have time off from school to pick up the new potatoes because obviously in those days, the wartime, it was dig for victory and new potatoes were the first crop of potatoes in the country because the Sillies were so nicely situated. And I can remember one time in particular, we were picking up potatoes and I came across, when when the potatoes are, are lifted, you then got the original one there that all the shoots came off to grow the new potatoes. And there was this lovely, squelchy, big potato. And I can remember standing up and the chap that was with me, he was in the choir with me at the church. And I can remember that he was down the far end, but Nicky Christopher, the boss, was standing between us. But he was bent down, out of line and fire, and I fired his potato at Mike, expecting to hit Mike. But instead of that, Nicky Christopher stood up and I caught him on the back of the neck. I quickly got down and pretended I didn't know nothing about it. What did they discover in the end it was you? I don't know, I can't remember. All I know was I kept my head down as if I was too busy. <laughs> that was the sort of thing, you know, that we got up to. They weren't they weren't malicious, if you understand what I mean, you know? Fun-hearted. Yes, yes. So, um, what else do you remember, then, oh, about the Sillies in particular? After the, the um, organ was electrified, they decided they'd like to keep me uh, in the church. And there was a man's choir and a lady's choir and a girl's choir, but they didn't have a boy's choir. So they started a boy's choir. And Mike Hicks, I just previously spoke of, he later became the chairman of the Isles of City Steamship Company. Um, he was roped in to be with me. So we started the, the um, boy's choir. That was quite amusing because um, obviously youngsters, you know, um, we were sort of messing around. A new vicar arrived and I can always remember his sermon and he's saying, I am a dying man, ye are dying people. That was his text. And I can remember crouching thinking, I'm too young to die. But it, he, he stood up, you know, and he, his chest came out and he spoke like this. And when you're that tender age, that sort of thing sticks in your mind forever. We were chattering amongst ourselves. And in the end, he was giving, uh, preaching his sermon. And he stopped in mid-flow and he said, When you boys have stopped... He said, perhaps, oh, stop chattering. He said, perhaps I can get on with my sermon. Can I ask, are you a, a Methodist? 
Well, actually, funny enough, I've been christened a Methodist and also Church of England. So you grew up with both denominations? No, before I moved over the Isles of Scilly, I was christened in Richmond Chapel. And after moving to the Isles of Scilly, I was going for confirmation. And of course, they didn't know the background. So the vicar decided, and Mike Hicks was the same, he he hadn't been christened. And uh, we were both um, christened Church of England then, so that we were able to um, go for confirmation. And I can remember going for confirmation. Um, We went in an open boat over to Tresco, and it was quite choppy because I can remember sitting in the bow of this boat and looking down, and the boat was about, oh, a good... 10 feet below me, and I was up in the air looking down at this, but it, it, it was really choppy. But I was christened by the Reverend, the Do- Dr. Hunkin, who was the um, Bishop of Tour at the time, and he was quite friendly with uh, Major Dorian Smith and used to spend a lot of time in the Isles of City, so he was no stranger to us. When, why did you decide to leave the island then, after well, after many years you were I, I mean, when you're in your sort of early teens, I'm in pictures once a week and dance once a month. Um, not that I, I, I love my pictures, but dancing I wouldn't bother much about, but I knew that I would start getting interested in it, so I decided that uh, I think... Uh, activities are more on the uh, on the mainland in the Isles of Scilly, so that was why I decided to come over. And you came back by Salonian again yes, to the yes, mainland. Yes, yes. Was this the same Salonian you came across to the Scilly? Saying about the Salonian again, I know when I was fourteen, I decided that I wanted to go join the navy as a boy sailor, and. You had to come over to HMS Rally to take exams and things. But the day that I was due to come over, the weather was so rough that only people with a general purpose to come over to the mainland were allowed to travel, and no women were allowed to travel. But I can remember it taking us five and a half hours of struggling across these heavy mountainous seas to get over to the mainland. But when I got to um, HMS Raleigh, the first thing they did was tested my eyes. And the person that tested my eyes said, oh, he said, no good. He said, you can't join the Navy. You've got bad eyesight. Now, I didn't know until that time I had bad eyesight. What does annoy me now is to see sailors with spectacles on. But then there, that's another story. So discrimination, you would say? Well, yes, yes. I, I, I got my own back a bit later on. So what did you do when you first came back from the Isles of Zealand? Oh, when I came back, um, I got a job as an errand boy. Um, this was um, the between, well, actually it was for a, a fish shop, which had a fish and chip shop adjacent to it. You know, and uh, you deliver all the wet fish supplies around the town. You had a 
carrier bike, you know, with the square basket on the front, delivering that. But I mean, all obviously you had music events on the radio, and the country tunes, all the um, all the Aaron boys were the same, and they'd go around whistling the country tunes, and you were all the same whistling like that, you know. But one item in particular I remember about that was there was a lady who lived just around the corner and just as the shop was closing, she would come around for six penny worth of cat wings, for uh, ling wings for a cat. Now this was after we'd um, iced all the fish down and was ready to go. And one of us had to sort of drag the fish out to cut these wings off. And there was a passageway running between the wet fish and the fish and chip shop. And the mate that I was there working with, John, he was in this, and I could hear what he was saying, but this lady couldn't hear what he was saying. And he said, tell her what you think of her. Now, go on, tell her what you think of her. And I was trying to keep a straight face and be serious about it, but he kept on about this, and he was rolling around with laughter in the, in the uh, corridor. So you, how many years did you do that job for? Oh, that would have been probably about a couple of years, I suppose. And, and then, of course, National Service came along. Because the National Health Service came out in 1948. 1948, yeah, that's another, that's another um, level of my life or another section of my life, as it were. That's a completely different thing altogether. But um, that... Uh, I was determined that I was not going to go in as a foot soldier after the elements of the um, failing the eye test. And uh, I tried for the RAF, and the same thing happened again. Uh, bad eyesight failed. So um, I then went in the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers. It's a, a, a corps as opposed to an infantry regiment. No way was I going to be a foot slogger. But uh, that was some very interesting stories to that as well really good and you met your um wife when in this time oh no this was uh after i'd done three years in the royal electrical mechanical engineer did you have to go away for that yeah i was in in, in malaya for three those three years for the best part of them that was some interesting time i was attached to the first seven gurkha rifles and that was really interesting because um, one of them actually, when he was on leave, made a cookery for me and presented to me, you know, full official presentation and that. And I said to the lads that I was with, well, there was five of us vehicle mechanics there. And I said, this should have been to all of us. And they said, no. Remember what you said to them when you were there? I said, no, I don't remember that. He said, you told him, he said, no paperwork if you have a bang. He said, come to me after the workshop's closed. And hammer, knock out the bumps and scrapes, bit of khaki paint. So, but I mean, I presume with that, I mean, they thought so highly of me that it was worthy. You know, it just showed how well I was respected. Well, in their eyes, you know. So it was a very interesting posting. We had... Um, Major Bond, who was uh, 
bond of Brooke Bond's tea, was a retired general, and he came being an honorary rank of major for the MT section. There were some marvelous experiences with that. So, so you have always been respected in any job you entailed in. I think probably, you know, but it was, it was, I think it was because I was always willing to be helpful. If you understand what I mean, you know, nothing, nothing was too much trouble. I always went out of my way to help anybody. So you said about getting involved with the um, National Health Service, as everyone associated it. They didn't abbreviate it as they do now, but you got yeah. involved. Well, when I came out of the service, um, there was a story I've just missed out on. That. It don't matter about that. We can, go, we can go back to that in a minute. Yeah. Um, they, um, there, people say about unemployment, there was a massive unemployment in those days and jobs were few and far between. But my father uh, used to go to a certain pub in the town for a hard drink or a couple of drinks in the evening. And the sister tutor um, with her um, partner used to go to this pub and told father about this job that was going in the hospital. Um, they wanted a driver engineer who could weld. Well, part of my job in uh, uh, Ramey was to do welding, and they wanted a welder to help the fitter to weld up hoppers to put the coal in to feed the gasport, the boilers. Um, Anyway, that was quite interesting because there was four of us shortlisted for interview and I was the only one who'd driven the column change and I taught the others how to drive with the column change and uh, none of them knew what to do. It was just a certain way you got to hold a wheel with the column change and, of course, got a, I got elected. But the health service in those days was only seven years old, so there was no demarcation lines. You know, so it's in in its infancy, as that. Well, yes, yes, yeah, very much so, and uh, I mean everybody pulled together. If you if there was a job to do, no matter what it was, you were asked to help, and it was really interesting in those days. You know, really, really interesting. Did it change the way the Alpha Surface was as it was during the war? To you not know? not really, because I mean. Um, in those days, when I started in the health service, there was a um, um, house committee composed of sort of um, prominent people in the town. But these were sort of the chairman of the gas board and that type of thing, at that, that, that level, you know. And uh, they sort of got together to actually run the hospital as such, you know. In other words, this 
hark back to when the hospital ran with a house committee. So I mean, basically, the hospital was run by five people. That was the um, two uh, consultants or three consultants, matron, head porter, and the hospital secretary. And your role within this was? I was a driver engineer, you know. I mean, I progressed over the years, and I became a porter and services manager, which is a highfalutin name, really. But at that level, uh, some were called bursas, some were called um, beagles. It was like a, you're in control of everything that happens. You have a, a key to all the doors. Nothing is sacrosanct, but it, it a really interesting role. So it, this was as it it's not was West Cornwall back then. This was no, this was actually West Cornwall Hospital then. But what? So it was known as West Cornwall. It wasn't. Yes, it was, no, no, known as West Cornwall Hospital. Because what was the name of West Cornwall Hospital before it was? Well, no, in, in those days it was um, there was Redruth Hospital, Campbell Redruth Hospital. Hmm. That's been gone now. And there's also City Hospital at Truro. Um, there was Maneg Hospital in Helston. That was a, a geriatric hospital. There was Edward Hayne at St Ives. There was Palter Hospital, which was a ladies' geriatric hospital at Haymore. And there was Belitho Hospital, which was a convalescent hospital. It was adjacent to... The heady thoracic unit, you know, for um, they were mainly TB patients, and there was 25 patients there sitting. There was um, sort of open plan um, huts where the patients were sitting, um, so they had plenty of fresh air because it was fresh air they were all interested in, you know, and that was very, very interesting, you know, to. Um, but to come down to what it is now, where there's no patients there anymore, but there is um, mental associated um, personnel there working. But uh, I mean, when I actually came home and retired, I knew that they were hell bent on selling that as a whole, going to conserve a hotel. But having been in the health service so long, I knew the devious ways that they were getting on. And they'd bought every expensive piece of fit, fixtures and fittings to do that out. And I knew full well that what they had in mind was to sell that off. So I was a bit annoyed about that. So I went to a board meeting and said that I'd lie down in the front gate and refuse anything to be moved in or out, that they wouldn't sell it off. And I mean, I'm quite pleased now that all these different mental health services are being run from Blytho. But uh, because they still um, is that the central location for the mental health service in Cornwall? Then, or yeah, is it? it's Cornwall Partnership Trust. No, Cornwall Partnership Trust uh, runs all the mental health. Um, the Cornwall partnership foundation trust and it's all to do with um 
the mental health and that type of thing, you know. I mean, eventually this will be joined in very closely with social services. So Cornwall Council will be taking control of it as such? No, I don't think it, it, it will have to be a united thing. I mean, that was this was proposed in April 1972, this amalgamation of services. And it's now 2013. Well, yes. Um, it, uh, over a long period of time, they were always, if uh, a cost came to a patient, social services would say, that's nothing to do with us, the NHS. And if it was something to do with social services, the health service would say, no, that's nothing to do with us, the social services. So while this squabbling was going on over many, many years, you know, it just wasn't getting on. I mean, I'm quite pleased with the way things are going at the moment because um, this total amalgamation is supposed to be happening by April of 2018. So that's um, four years, four or five years. So you were active in the NHS and also you had other roles as well to lead in the Penzance area. Well, oh yes, when I retired, um, I became... uh, because... We watched the town go down and down and down. I mean, we spent a lot of time. Somebody said to me a long, many years ago, because I was looking to uh, improve, you know, because my wife was quite happy for me to stay as a driver engineer. But I know there was a very senior person in the health service was surprised to find I still worked at West Cornwall Hospital. Oh, he said, you're still here. Well, that gave me the impetus to to get on, you know. And uh, I took a personal interest with what was happening in the health service, specifically to do with Cornwall. And I knew that Cornwall was financially deprived by millions and millions of pounds. And I drew this attention of our local MP. But... It's getting technical now. Because of parliamentary protocol, they were not able to unite as all the MPs for Cornwall and speak up as some... So that annoyed me, but, uh, you know, I just kept dripping away and dripping away. I mean, there are a lot of things, because of my background, have improved in health service. Don't get me wrong, there is a lot of good work being done. But unfortunately, where anything goes wrong, this is cannon fodder for the media. And I liken Trillis to Northern Ireland. Bullets and blood are headline news. But all the good things, like the people in Northern Ireland, of which I know a lot of, because I used to go over there in my work in the health service, all of friendliness and helpfulness, nothing ever gets written about. So, you know, that's how, uh, how it goes. And you then got involved with, I believe, Penzance Town Council? Yeah, because of watching the town go down, down and down, there came a by-election up, and I said to Margaret, that's my wife, you know, do you mind if I go for it? 
She said, why ask me? She said, you, I know full well you're going to go for it. And I went for it. And I had two-thirds of the vote out of three nominees. But I forgot people remembered me from when I worked at West Cornwall Hospital. And I mean, there was one lady said to me another time when I was canvassing, don't bother to come to, you know, canvass me. I can remember you from old, she said. Don't waste your time. You know, it was that sort of thing, you know, so... So how many years was you on the actual council? Oh, 16 years. I I was so um, despondent about the way things were going. Um, the Cornwall Council were pushing so much on the town councils and parish councils to do this work. What annoyed me was they'd already received the money to run these services and then they expected town and parish councils to run them. And I just got a bit despondent, really. And like this about this, we said about the Isles of Silly Link. Well, Cornwall Council had a um, privileged setup, for want of a better word, with um, selected staff trying to improve this link. And because of my association with the help with the Isles of Silly, I accosted them when they came back from a meeting on the Isles of Silly. And because I was very friendly with the county councillor, because I'm, I'm friendly with all of them at that point. I attend more county council meetings and councillors themselves. And I said to Graham Hicks, who was the portfolio holder for the Island League then, I said, look, I said, it's about time. I said that the town council got involved. So he said, what do you mean? I said, we've never been involved at all. I said, it's important the town council gets involved. And he turned around on these two highfalutin people. He said, that's the town councillor talking. He said, I want to meet him with town council. And sure enough, we had a meeting within about 10 days to a fortnight. And that was how the, the, the actual thing is going on now, you know, rolling on now. And then the older people's forum came along. Was that through Penrith Council or was that...? No, no, that's nothing. It was only because it was originally uh, Penrith Seniors Forum. And... Uh, this was because Chris Kinnanen, who was a district councillor and also a county councillor, um, very much um, looking after the interests of older people. And uh, that was when the forum was formed. That was an actual fact. It was because of that that Penrith radio station was set up. It was the... Um, uh, because of the, we felt, well, Chris Canadian more than anybody felt, it was important to get an amalgamation of all the community, both young and old, to form some sort of liaison between one another. And that was when the Pemmets Community Radio was started. And your role in this organisation was? Um, well, I suppose I've always been on the committee of it. But uh, I fully appreciated what this radio station could do. So I've actually been involved right from the inception of the radio station. And it's been really marvellous. I know we've lurched from one financial crisis to another. 
and things like that. But we'll get in there. We'll get in there. And the the number of volunteers, I can't believe it, which we met up after 12 months starting. And I didn't recognize, I would say, a good 90% of them. But these were all youngsters and volunteers, all doing their own little bit for the radio station. And, I mean, we've got a, a lot of what I call students down learning the art of presentation and media because they're hoping to get to the media when they when they leave school and things like that. So, I mean, it's a little, the radio station, a little goldmine for education for the youngsters. So if you was to leave a lasting memory in everyone's mind, what would it be? My lasting memory? Yeah, if you want people to remember you by, what would you like them to remember you by? I don't know, um, because a certain person in my life said that uh, you're going to die a very lonely man. So I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you're always falling out with people and telling people off. So I said, there are always people, paid officers, who are paid by you and me. And I said, two councillors or three councillors were discussing this. And one said to the other, you know, he's going to have the biggest funeral going. And the third one said, yes, somebody we delegated lift up the lid to make sure Zim was gone. <laughs> so, you know, that, that just, that, that's how things So that's the sort of humour that you would have shown when you was younger as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> so in a sense, they do new sort of humour <laughs> back <laughs> on you. Yeah, it is. It's true. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I had some marvellous times on council. You know, I, I wouldn't, um, I didn't join the... Um, Penrith and Corn Carno Twinning Committee because I thought that we having um, right pairs money to pass for trips over to Corn Carno. Well, when I found we paid for ourselves, I then joined that committee. You understand what I mean? Mm. It's the same as Penley House and Gardens. I've been on that practically the whole of the time that I was a councillor. I've now, now I've finished with council. I'm now a, a friends of Penley, but I got all that knowledge that I had previously that I can still use that as a friend. Thank you very much, Malcolm, for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you.